river's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie. Drag Quest Podcast, back at you. What's going on, Bob? How much, buddy? We're back. We've been uh, slacking and hunting and all that stuff lately. So uh... yeah, we uh, we've been hunting our tails off. I know uh, we've both been put in a long, hard grind, and neither of us has uh, brought home the bacon. So we decided we'd bring on uh, someone that brought home a whole lot of bacon this year. Yeah, somebody knows what the hell they're doing. Apparently, so apparently so. Colton Gilman. Uh, that guy, uh, if you guys are on social media on Instagram, you'll see that he stacked him up this year. Um, great guy. Um, younger guy who's just really passionate about traditional bow hunting and he's really getting after it. Heck yeah, cool dude. Just up and moved from the East Coast to Montana to hunt and he's living the dream. So it's yeah, he, cool he, talking to him and getting to know him a little bit. Hopefully, uh, keep that up and get him on in the future. Good dude. Um, other than that, you guys will like that, but we got, uh, definitely need to thank our Patreon supporters because we've been slacking and they're keep supporting us. So yeah, so awesome. Thanks you guys. Um, thanks to the companies that send us stuff and we really appreciate your patience and through, uh, through the winter, hopefully we'll get them out a little more often and. Today we're going to give away, uh, thanks to Selway, we got another bear quiver. We're going to give away in a hat. So, uh, John Alston drew your name, Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for supporting us. We're going to send you this quiver out and a hat and, uh, we're going to give away that bow here at Christmas time. So yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about that quiver. You've got one on your bow, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. I actually, uh, bought one from Drew over there because I don't know if we're supposed to say or not, but our buddy Chris Perino helps with that deal also. It's kind of his idea or something in there. And Chris has helped us out a lot, his podcast. So I picked one of those up and yeah, I like it. So, yeah, it looks looks pretty slick on your bow for sure. Yeah, Vin- I like, vintage. I, I, I've been shooting those great northerns a long time, and they're awesome. Bob's super cool dude. Yeah, um, and I like the flat arrow though. Like I like because when I lay down to rattle or call, or my arrow doesn't flip in the dirt. And if you guys know what I'm talking about, you'll understand. If you're elk hunting or whatever, so that was pretty pretty nice. Six arrow guy. The more arrows, the better for me. So that's good. And uh, yeah, looks pretty good on my my setup yeah. there. So yeah, and uh, for our Patreon supporters, if you guys aren't supporting the podcast yet, uh, we encourage you to do so. We have been kind of teasing with a uh, bear super Kodiak Black Beauty, which we have uh, in our possession, and we are going to give this bow away. Um, so if you guys are listening. Uh, please support the podcast and, uh, this is the giving season and we are going to be giving this, uh, bow and we're going to give it away with a great northern quiver because the quiver, it, uh, bolts right onto the bow. So they kind of go together. Uh, 
And that bow, we are going to give that thing away sometime around Christmas, Christmas, New Year's, right here at the end of the month. That uh, that bow is going to get shipped to one of our Patreon supporters. So uh, spread the word. We'll put it up on social media. It's uh, I think it's 50 or 55 pound uh, black beauty super Kodiak. It is a gorgeous bow. And we'd like to thank Bear Archery and our good buddy Chris Prino who uh, is involved with that company uh, to thank those guys. We do appreciate it and definitely support the podcast. And you just might win a uh, limited edition black beauty. And other news, um, get on traditional archers of Nevada, get on their website, get signed up. Even if you're not a resident of Nevada, if you hunt Nevada, if you buy a hunting license, support those guys, those guys have been putting in a ton of work. They started their state traditional bow hunting organization and they're giving away some awesome stuff for a membership drive. And I believe, don't quote me, but I believe it ends at the end of the year. And they're going to pull. Them yeah. Down. So they got if you some stuff. Get, entered, get on there. They've got, I think they're giving away uh, a bow from Poison Dart. Yep. Is that right? Yep. yep. And some stuff from Rocky Mountain Specialty Gear. And they got some great prizes and definitely support those dudes. Um, great dudes, great organization. Um, so. Do that. Uh, if you're in Oregon or near Oregon, we do have our winter banquet coming up February, the first weekend of February. Yep. Yep. I think it's uh, the first actually. So yeah, t- t- I think it's the first. Yeah. Or the fourth or something like that. The first well, week weekend. Aren't you are, uh, you're one of our banquet planner guys. Yeah. I am on the, the committee. <laughs> uh, I, I, I am, uh, on the committee and I do know the date. It is, uh, February Saturday 5th. the first. Yep. And we have uh, Bill McConnell coming out from Montana as our keynote speaker. Um, we had Bill on the podcast, uh, I don't know, 20 episodes back. He is a total stud, traditional bow hunter, primitive bow hunter, hunting with sticks and rocks. He's going to come out and talk about his new book that's coming out. He's also going to be giving a seminar on tracking. Um, I'm really looking forward to hanging out with Bill. Such a wealth of knowledge and such a cool guy. Uh, we have some other cool seminars lined up. I know that a lot of the Oregon guys that are listening to this. I've reached out to a lot of new members that had just joined TAO and I've got them, uh, uh, rounded up to come to this banquet and you guys know who you are. I'm looking forward to meeting you guys there. It's going to be a great time. So it's worth the drive. Uh, definitely support your local traditional archery organization, no matter what state you're in. And if you guys don't have one, uh, you know, look at the guys from Nevada. You start your own. And, uh, those guys from Nevada, um, uh, us here at TradQuest, we're more than willing to point you guys in the right direction on how to get that going because it's important to be involved and stay involved. Yep. And for you Idaho guys, the I, traditional boners of Idaho or Idaho traditional boners, I want to say their banquet is the next weekend, the 8th. And they're having our, our, the man, the legend, Larry D. Jones is their speaker. So if you guys are anywhere around that area, don't miss that one. I mean, Larry is awesome. the living legend. Yeah. I'm hoping I can make it, but I, we'll see, but I'm, I'm hoping talk to wife into 16 hours of driving, but I'm going to try. So, yep. And while we're talking about organizations, Compton traditional bow hunters, that is our national traditional bow hunting organization. If you're not a member to Compton's, uh, 
Don't wait no longer. Sign up. Support these guys. These are the guys that are keeping the lights on for us. Um, so support those guys. They, they put on a, a, a cool, don't they do like a bi yearly event, something like that coming up, I believe. Uh, yep. um, so yeah, get onto their website, check them out, um, and support those guys. And, you know, uh, do what you can when you can and support these organizations. We appreciate you guys. All right. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, Colton Gilman, welcome to the TradQuest podcast. Uh, we do appreciate you taking the time out from traveling around killing stuff to talk to us. <laughs> well, I appreciate the invite. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. Why don't you just go ahead and give us, uh, the rundown on kind of how you got into, uh, traditional bow hunting and how you uh, landed where you're at now well my name's colton gilman i live in uh south central montana i've lived out here for about four years i grew up in mason county west virginia and like i said about four years ago decided to, to move out here it seemed like all i was doing back east was trying to save up money all year to come out here for a couple weeks so i figured i'd just make the, the drive a little shorter <laughs> um sure started shooting a bow some of my earliest memories are you know going to bow shoots with my dad we had a little archery club called the uh bend area bow hunters and uh you know i shot a recurve when i was real young my dad had me a uh a six pound at 21 inch bantam recurve made when i was like three years old so i shot it till i was like five and he got me a little compound because him and my brother and my dad and, you know, all my cousins and uncles and stuff shot compounds. And I shot him, and I, I remember there was a guy at the, the archery range that, you know, the plaid shirt, and he shot a long bow and wood arrows, and he was the only one there. And I remember just looking at his bow and just being in awe of it, you know. And he outshot a lot of the guys that was on the course. So it just always, you know, intrigued me. So but I shot compound all through high school, and then when I got out of high school, I got my first real job, and, and bought a, a recurve. It was a, a PSE Impala, like 55 pounds. I overbowed myself like everybody does when they first get into it. And uh, shot that thing for a couple months and realized that that really wasn't what I was wanting. So I bought a, uh, I got a longbow, a Martin Savannah, and I just fell in love with that thing. Hunted groundhogs all summer and just shot everything that moved with that thing. And about a month before season, we went to a bow shoot and they had a a guy that was selling used bows and ended up picking up a black widow. And I've had that bow for 11 years. I took that thing all over the country and killed a lot of stuff with it. A one a one bow guy, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, until I went to Australia there, uh, Bob made me a, a buffalo bow, but which made me nervous because yeah, for 11 years I've shot the same same bow and then Bob was just like, hey, biggest hunt of your life, here take this bow. <laughs> yeah, all right sure what weight did you settle on with your black widow uh it was 60 pounds when i first bought it and i shot it for a while and uh i was groundhog hunting one day and i ended up leaving it in the truck a little too long you know real hot and the top limb warped so i sent it back to black widow and i asked them if they could take any weight down and uh, they ended up getting it down to 53 pounds nice so i shot that for years and I uh, ended up, I had my bow in a gun vault, 
and I went to pull it out and I caught the limb tip on the edge of it and it delaminated the clear glass oh, on the belly of the bow. So I fixed it and everything, but I ended up, I had an elk hunt that fall and I just kind of worried about it. So I, uh, ordered new limbs and I sat on 41 or 51 pounds. I've shot that for four or five years. Nice. So growing up in West uh, Virginia, I'm, I'm a, were you, is Mason County one of, don't they have a few bow only counties down there, don't they? Yeah, that's uh, more Southern West Virginia. And I got family that lives down there, but I, I never did. I never hunt. Never went down there and hunted with them. Cause they just, they started a, McDowd. Uh, I think last year they did was the first year. It's, it's in January. It's like a five or six day, call it a mountain heritage hunting. And it's, Flintlocks or longbows and recurves down there in those bow only counties. Uh, yeah, it's a, a statewide thing. It's a, I think you can use percussion, but it's all side lock, no scope, uh, recurves or longbows. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's pretty cool. I've always wondered why, you know, Ohio and stuff, they have a season into, into January and we never did. January, you know, last of December was always when we had to quit hunting. North Carolina and uh, it's pretty yeah. cool back there. There's a lot more mountains than you think. That's for sure. Oh, it is. Yeah. People, you know, I moved to Montana and they're like, Oh, you flatlander. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> you just, you just don't have to uh, look out for snakes and spiders and all that stuff when you're hiking around in Montana. That's the, that's the bonus, man. Those, I went on some hikes with my brother-in-law and we saw, what did we see? A, timber rattler and a, a cottonmouth and it's and man it's all deciduous trees so they're all leaves everywhere and those timber rattlers are like they blend into the leaves it's crazy i couldn't imagine it nuts oh they have great camera yeah yeah that's pretty cool not a lot of guys just you know stick with one bow and and, and not you know try everything under the sun it seems like your focus is more on uh, being in the woods than it is, uh, you know, shopping for bows or equipment or whatnot. Maybe uh, speak a little bit more to that. I'm definitely not a tinker. Other than broadheads, I'm a broadhead nut. <laughs> I'll shoot, like, I'm looking at my bow in the corner right now, four air quiver with a hex blunt, and it has three different broadheads in it in the quiver. So <laughs> I never know which one I'm going to shoot until I sit down. I'm like, yeah, I'll throw one A standard this time. But, uh, yeah, the bow, I just never seen a need for it. I can shoot that bow really well and I'm comfortable with it. And, you know, I don't have the problem. A lot of people, they'll switch their arrows so much. And then, you know, we shoot all in, I shoot all instinctively and you got to kind of rely on a trajectory that you know. So you guys changing arrows three or four times a year that can't be as productive for hitting what you're, you know, hitting what you're aiming at at unknown yardage. Right. Absolutely. Well, why don't we touch on the broadheads? Uh, what uh what are the different heads that you've tried and like and uh tell us a little bit more about that obsession uh i've shot i've got a list somewhere but i've killed animals with over a dozen different heads just trying different ones and to be honest you know the old cliche is you know shoot a sharp one that's that's really my only it kind of got to where it kind of started with people, you know, saying this broadhead's the best, that broadhead's the best. So I just started shooting, you know, two deer and switching, a deer and switching, a pig and switching, you know, just switching it up. And there ain't a whole lot of difference in them. Some of them are a little stronger. Some of them are a little easier to sharpen. You know, other than 
how hard the steel is. How I about a whole lot of difference. Two blade versus one, three one blade. Medium size. Uh, I've killed animals with both of them. I shot the big bear this year in Idaho with a three blade snuffer. I've killed deer with snuffer. Um, I do like a two blade. I, I feel like I can get them a lot sharper. I know I can get them a lot sharper. They're easy to resharpen out in the woods. You know, if you if you unload your quiver on an animal and you're out there, you can kind of. I keep a file in my in my quiver, but I sharpen them all with stones. I'm not a big file guy. I like that real real smooth finish. Not really the rough kind of Fred Bear style finish. Okay, what about a, a single bevel versus a double bevel in your two blade heads? Do you have a preference there? Not really. I, I killed my elk this year with a single bevel. I've killed deer with single bevels, and I find I find that blood trails different from deer to deer more than head to head. You know, I think a lot of people will shoot a deer, you know, maybe have a high exit or maybe have like a real, you know, an exit in a fatty spot, you know, with one broadhead, and then they don't get a good blood trail, and they're like, oh, that broadhead ain't no good. You know, go, go shoot five deer with it and see. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a great point. Well, uh, how, so you, how did you end up in Montana? Well, uh, I was living in Ripley, West Virginia. And, uh, like I said, it just seemed like every year since I've, for the last five or six years, I just saved up money all year to come out here for, you know, a week or two. So we, me and my girlfriend was living in an apartment in Ripley and I was, working a job that was fun but I didn't make no money and I was just sitting around the house one day I was like what do you think about moving to Montana she's like yeah if that's what you want to do let's do it so I did the math real quick and I had like 20 days or 30 days something like that to get out here so I could be a resident for 180 days to get resident tags so we picked up in February and just moved out here just kind of went out of blind Man, that is that is uh, the dream for a lot of people. Um, <laughs> and sounds like you found a pretty good woman willing to follow you. Yeah, she's she's all right. I keep her around. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, how did you make that work? As far as just up and moving and and finding a, a, a way to uh, you know have a schedule where you could go hunting and you know tell us a little bit about uh how that works out for you. Well, I spent a summer out here and lived in Cody, Wyoming as a fly fishing guide. So I, was, I really liked that area and I knew there was a lot of good antelope and elk and stuff like that and good fishing. So I thought about moving to Wyoming, but uh, a guy that I went to school with a couple years ahead of me, I didn't really know him in school, but he ended up buying a motel here in Red Lodge. So I got a hold of him and, you know, he's like, yeah, it's, you know, winter. So it's kind of the off season. He gave me a place to, to stay until we find a place and he knew a contractor in town and I called him and got a job like a couple of weeks before I moved out here and just moved out here and made it work found a little house to rent and you had uh, been hunting Montana I like I like Montana's tags a little bit better the mule deer hunting seems a lot better over ever across the border but I don't know you, a lot of you, land and you had mentioned uh, you'd made a uh, a deal with your boss for, for the month of September. <laughs> yeah. When I moved out of here, I told him, I was like, I, I don't I don't work during September. And he's like, oh, okay. You know, like I said, it was February. September come around, and or, uh, 
uh, August come around and I was like, Hey, uh, remember next month I ain't coming to work. He's like, you were serious. I was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I didn't move out here to beat in nails, you know, want to hunt. So I ended up the first three years, first three Septembers I was out here. I hunted like 28 days on two of them and 27 days on the other one. That's awesome. Just made it work, saved up money. And I said the six week season helps there too, right? Six week season. We got spring bear, spring turkey. Antelope starts August 15th. And then we get to hunt till the end of December. Yeah, the end of uh, November. So what would that be? We hunt like seven months out of the year, something like that. Well, uh, by looking at you. hunting fish the rest of the time. (laughs) (laughs) No off season. Uh, so it looks like you really filled your freezer up, uh, pretty well this year. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this season and, and, uh, some of the hunts you went on and maybe some of the highlights. All right. Well, uh, turkey season came in first. So I hunted here in this County 520. We get two turkey tags. So I filled both of those. And, uh, right after that, my buddy, Mitch Glantz and Bob Smith come out for the second year in a row for a little spot and stock bear hunt here in Montana. And uh, I ended up killing a bear on that. And then I got talked into going to a, a bear camp over in Idaho with Tyler Carlson, uh, Aaron Coey, uh, Bob Smith, and uh, DJ Zor. And I ended up killing two bears over there. That was pretty unbelievable. I figured I used up all my luck there in the spring. But uh, September came around, and Mitch came back out because he had a, a elk tag. And we hunted, I think we hunted 11 days. I killed a white-tailed buck while he was out and a mule deer doe while he was out. And then the day after he left, I hated that, but it was the day after he left, I ended up killing a bull. So he, do you he hunt, missed it, but... Do you hunt the, uh, do you backpack hunt, or do you hunt from your rig, or how, how does your elk hunting look out there in Montana? Elk hunting and mostly backpacking. I've got a, it's a, I hunt on public, hunt on public, but I access it through private. I just went and knocked on the rancher's door one day and he was like, yeah, sure. So we go through two miles of private to get back in the, the national forest and then we'll camp for three or four days back in there. You can, the day I killed my bull, I actually just hiked it through, but it's a lot nicer when you hunt till dark and, you know, you got to get up three hours for daylight to make the hike. Right. But for the most part, I'm backpacking in and just setting up camp and close enough to them to where you're not disturbing them, but you don't have to walk too far to get to them. Are you uh, doing a lot of calling, or is it a glassing country where you're where you're ambushing them, or what's your tactic uh, for the elk hunting? Uh, mostly just soft cow calling. This is the first year I really kind of obsessed over Paul Medell's podcast. I listened to it. I don't know how many times I listened to the, the couple of them that you had, you guys had him on for. And I was always kind of more scared of bugles, you know, because people talk about them being bugle shy, and they just do not talk in this area. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the wolves, the bear, hunters, but they're real quiet. So, uh, but I, I utilized some bugling, and, and I actually killed that bull. I did a contact buzz. Yep. I was creeping up this ridge, and I was just, you know, still hunting up this ridge. And uh, I'd move 20 yards, call a little bit, move 40 yards, call a little bit, 20 yards, just, you know, 
all through the morning and end up seeing two bulls bedded and they're about 80, 90 yards away. It's kind of hunkered down, but kind of caught out in the open and, uh, Cal called at him and I was repositioned and I just seen one at, at first and I was kind of set back on my feet and the other one caught some movement and looked at me and they got up and went to walk away and I cow called and nothing. I hit him with a bugle and he stopped and, uh, and went to walk and again, I hit him with a contact buzz and, uh, it was a big roll, right? About 10 yards to my right. And that's the only thing that saved me. I believe it's a big hill. And he came down to the end of that hill and started walking towards me. And, uh, you know, like 60 yards, you're like, holy crap, this is going to work. He gets to 40 yards, you're like, oh, I might get a shot. He gets to 30, you're like, oh, this is going to happen. He gets to 20, you're like, oh, any time now. He gets to 15 and then 10, and then you're just like, nah, this ain't going to happen. He stopped at six yards. And I was sitting there just looking at him, you know, looking up at him. I was kneeling, sitting there at six yards looking over me. And I remember just thinking, like, you know, this ain't going to happen. Just enjoy this. Look at his eyelashes. Listen to him breathing, you know, look at his eyes looking and, just try to remember this, you know, don't screw it up by trying to get a shot. And, Cause I've been there before, not that close, but he always screwed up trying to try something stupid to get a shot. So he kind of boogered. And when he boogered, he whirled, you know, just didn't see no elk. And, and when he whirled, I come to full draw and come up on my knees and he caught movement or whatever and turned broadside eight yards. And I just put it right behind the shoulder, stuck in the opposite side shoulder. And he went barreling over that big hill. Couldn't believe it. Oh man! Did you have to call to stop him, or he just he just turned and stopped? I didn't. No, I didn't do nothing. I think I think he you know caught movement. He wasn't expecting danger to be that close. I'm sure. So whenever you know just some movement, he you know I come to full draw. I think he caught me in his peripheral vision, and uh, I mean he was in a flat out spin to run, and he just paused for a second, turned broadside, awesome. and he ran about eighty yards down the hill, and I heard him crash. And you were by yourself? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So does, uh, does the yeah. girlfriend help pack meat or? Uh, yeah, she was in West Virginia at the time. She actually, she actually killed a, a deer with her longbow this year back in West Virginia. Oh. Yeah, she was back taking care of her. Huh? Now we're talking. Yeah, she was uh, back in West Virginia taking care of her mom. She had some, some health issues there earlier in the year. And, uh, when we found out she was going to be there during bow season, I shipped her a longbow, and she borrowed a blind off a guy. And you can bait in West Virginia, and it took some convincing, but I put a, she put out a little corn. So she was doing it all on her own, and she hunted like six or seven days in a row. And she had to take her mom to a doctor's appointment. So on the, you know, after that day, she went back in. She just she called me when she's at the doctor. She's like, it's driving me crazy not not being in my blind, and kind of a proud moment, you know, proud boyfriend moment. And uh, so the next day she went out there and, and shot a little button buck coming in. She called me just in tears. I was on my way to work, and I thought she fell on an arrow or something. You know, she's calling me balling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it sounds like you got a – sounds like your girlfriend's your new hunting partner then, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's rad. Yeah, she likes it. That's awesome. You have to, you're going to have to but teach yeah. her how to, how to do some elk calling. Yeah, that's why I need someone 20 yeah. yards behind me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I walked up to that bull. I was all by myself. I wish he would have been there, but I ended up calling one of my buddies from uh, Cody, Wyoming. He come up and helped me pack it out. And then you kind of walk up to something like that, and you're like, what in the world did I do? I'm five miles in by myself. 
Yeah, for sure. What uh, time? Of, what time of season was that? Were you in the middle of September? Or? No, it was towards the end. I, I can't remember. I think it was like the twenty second or something like that. Twenty fourth. Okay. It was towards the end. Okay. So uh, at uh, what point did uh, you start? I know you took a trip uh, down under. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about how the planning for that trip began and uh, tell us a little bit about that adventure. Well, about two years ago, I got talking to the guy. I ended up buying a, a rifle off a guy. It was a, just a real cool old rifle, had a hand-carved stock and stuff like that on it, and it was a chambered in a weird caliber I didn't know nothing about, so I got on a Facebook page about big bore rifles, and I got talking to Anthony, the guy I ended up going over there with, and we got talking about buffalo hunting, and I was like, that's something I'd always wanted to do, and he said, won't you come over and hunt? So, planned it for two years, saved some money up, and and uh, <laughs> he wasn't too excited. He thought I was going to bring a rifle, and I was like, oh, by the way, I'm bow hunting. He's like, I don't know about that. <laughs> that took some convincing, but and we planned it for two years, and ended up going with a, a guy I know from eastern Montana. He flew over there with me, and and it was it was it was a pretty good trip. It was neat. What was the logistics of 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 you know getting your your bow over there and you know some of the costs involved in going on on such a um, you know a extended trip to another country like that? It was surprising how cheap it was. You know, I've been doing cheap trips for for years now, and as far as getting my bow over there, I just bought a, a one piece longbow case, just a like a molded plastic case and in the states it was like an extra 40 bucks just like an extra baggage and i put an air tube and my takedown recurve in my other bag and it was just 40 bucks to to take a bow over there but once you got to australia it was a restricted item so you had to you had to you know claim it as a restrictive item a baggage claim and they had to put a tag on it. you had to sign for it take a piece of paper to the next airport and all that but it was surprising how, how cheap it really was to go on that hunt. I mean, I know people have spent twice that, you know, going from Ohio to Colorado to go on an elk hunt. You know, there's right. no, there's no tags. There's no, you know, no licenses or anything you got to buy to hunt over there. And so the hunt was, was the primary focus was the buffalo? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't. I didn't get a didn't get a buffalo, but I had some opportunities. But it was amazing how they weren't hard to stock, but they had an uncanny ability to know when they winded you which way the wind was coming from. I know that sounds weird, but the wind came out of the east about every day. But down in the little depressions that that the water held in, you know, so they would be laying in there midday. The wind swirled, and you never knew how long it would hold. You know, once you got in on them, they might have been two minutes, it might be 20 minutes, but the wind was going to swirl. And you feel a tickle in the back of your neck and they'd stand up and just look at you. You know, they're not like a deer or a bear or anything. They're, their necks are so muscly that they have a hard time turning their head. So uh, wherever they got to look, you know, they got to be kind of facing that direction. So they they turn around and just stare you down. And there were several times I was inside 10 yards and they're just looking at you. You can't do nothing about it. And they turned so quick, you know, 
I've shot deer and stuff, you know, as they're turning to, to leave, but those things just, they turn so quick and be out of there like a scared whitetail. Kind of surprising. Were you, were you ever worried about them, you know, coming your way, trampling you? I mean, that seems like a 2,000 pound animal um, <laughs> inside of 10 yards. That would be kind of nerve wracking. There's a couple times I picked the biggest tree around me and thought about how I could get behind it pretty quick. But for the most part, no, not really. You could, you could tell it, you know, they were just surprised and scared like most animals. What, what, uh, I'm sure like, they can get ornery. How, how big of a groups were they hanging in the ones that you were stalking? Uh, so they called them family mobs if they were cows and calves. And sometimes they have young bulls with them. But for the most part, the big bulls were just by themselves. Okay. And what so you, was you it? Walk up to a water hole. What was that? No, go ahead. Oh, just saying. You'd walk up to a water hole and you start a glass and you know through the bush palms and and uh, just the vegetation there and you'd see just black fur or you know hide and and you're like, which way are they facing? Which way is the wind going? Where's the high side of the water hole? You had to kind of figure out all that and it was like I said, it wasn't real hard to get close to them but every time you got close they'd be laying down spine facing you straight away straight towards you and you just don't take angled shots on a big animal like that right did did you uh were you having encounters and stocks on them daily or yeah pretty much it was we we didn't start hunting till about two hours after daylight and i didn't really understand that we'd you'd catch them you catch them walking down these roads, which are just dirt two tracks out through the bush because, you know, their horns are so wide, they have a hard time, you know, you get path of least resistance down the road. So we'd be driving to where we're hunting, and several times we'd see them just off the road, and I'd, I'd hop out, and they'd, you know, keep driving and go up the road a couple hundred yards, and I'd try to make a stop. But it seemed like if they weren't feeding, it was really hard. They looked like they are walking slow, but it's really hard to keep up with them and try to get ahead of them. So, and then after it got pretty hot during the day, we'd just go to different water holes. Copy. Um, did did you get a chance to uh, eat some of the game while you were over there? I did, yeah. Um, Anthony, they, they pretty much live off buffalo. They go shoot several of them a year, and that's pretty much, you know, they don't buy beef or nothing. So we got to, we got to have it prepared a couple different ways. He brought some to camp like a – kind of like pot roast made out of the shanks which was surprising i guess that's one of the best you know he likes that the best part of the buffaloes the shanks you know stuff that we just throw in to make burger but he'd slow cook it and it was really tender and had a really good flavor to it and then the the pig i shot we ate it we oh you shot a pig while you were there yeah oh tell us about that yeah we were then the different water holes, they'd stop because I didn't know where, you know, any of these water holes were. And that country over there, everything looked exactly the same. It looked like a place you could get lost for days. So I don't know how they, they knew where they were at, but they, they'd walk, you know, hit a little trap, you know, a little path and stuff. And they'd, they'd stop and draw me a little picture in the dirt. Like, you know, here's the water hole. Here's the high side. Here's the low side. Come into it this way. And, and I'd make the stock. And after I'd make the stock, I'd walk back to them and then they'd take me to the next one you know, kind of like that, kind of hopping to different water holes. And there was a chain of water holes. There was three of them. So he told me, he's like, you know, go to one, 
once we see that you know you've walked past it, we'll come up to that one and we'll just stay behind you like 50 yards so don't mess it up. And uh, so I went up to the last one and I could see some black, you know, hide laying in through the through the brush with my binoculars. I thought it was a buffalo. I knocked up, took my shoes off, slid my pack off, and went to easing up there. I got inside 20 yards and you could I could tell through the brush that it was a pig and it was laying just perfectly broadside. So I snuck up to about 12 yards and stepped out to shoot it. And uh, I don't know if it was asleep or just completely zoned out because it didn't budge. I come to full draw and it was angling towards me just a slight bit, but I had the buffalo rig, so I really wasn't worried about penetration. So I hit him right in the center of his shoulder and I come out the middle of the ribs on the offside. The arrow sunk so far down in the mud on the offside when he stood up, he broke my arrow off. And he just come running as hard as he could right on the trail I was on. And I was like, oh, cool, this thing's charging. <laughs> so I was waiting for it to get right on me, you know, before I jumped out of the way. And he wasn't charging. He just he seen me in the road about three steps before he got to me and took off and ran past them guys. So it was pretty cool. They got to see the whole thing. Now, were they, they backing about, you up with a rifle on the buffalo? Was that, was that why they were following you, or what was that? Uh, well, I didn't know where the, the thing, where the, the water holes were. So, you know, they had to show me where the water holes were. And in the beginning, he wasn't real wild about me hunting by myself, but I tried to tell him that, you know, having three or four people trying to stalk in this stuff, and this stuff was unbelievably loud. I think the only reason I, I got as close as I did because there's wallabies and with wallabies and wild dogs and and uh, kangaroos just everywhere. You'd see 30 of them driving down the road. So they made a good bit of noise. I think the buffalo just thought I was a, a kangaroo or something sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, but, but, yeah, so they, they wanted to keep close enough to where if stuff got squirrely, they could, they could help me out with the rifles. Okay, so... It's a big country over there, isn't it? I mean, I, I mean you're driving. What do they call... Ranches over there, they call them. They don't call them sections. Cattle what stations. Stations, cattle stations. Stations. That's right. You had a guy. Yeah. Stop by our station one time, and he was, you know, he lived there a long time, and he was telling me about that. His stations, and he, I mean, he was just telling me that the, you know, they drive six or seven hours on one of those, you know, on those roads just to get to a certain. Oh place, yeah. You know. Well, that was, we, we got in the car, I think it was like three and a half hours to go where we were hunting from the, the town we flew into. Yeah. It's so not, what, I mean, what was that like? I know you were rolling around in a Land Cruiser, which is really awesome. <laughs> uh, what was that like? Like when you got out of that airport and got through that city and got into that bush country, um, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about that. I mean, it just, it looked like what you'd imagine, you know, you watched, crocodile dundee and stuff and it was it was a lot hillier you know where if i remember the movie right but it was just all flat and the dirt was just this bright red like just irony dirt and just nothing for miles and miles and miles they definitely take their their off-train vehicles serious over there they you know you got enough gas for way more than you need you always carry water with you you always carry food with you you know, because you might get stuck out there and you're, you know, hours and hours from anywhere. So it's pretty neat to to get in real wild country. I mean, there's no paved roads going to where we were going and just these dirt roads that nobody used. You know, what's, there wasn't a one side to stay on. Everyone drove on the side that wasn't the bumpiest. 
And you had some interactions with some of the uh, tribal people or um, I don't know what you... Aborigines? Yeah. Yeah, we were actually hunting on uh, Aboriginal land. Uh, one of the guys that I, we hunted with was a, as a, I don't know how they would put it, kind of like an honorary member. He's been taking care of them and, and doing stuff for the community and and fishing with them and, and doing all this stuff for like 15 years. And and it was really cool. They they all wanted to, when they seen his vehicle, they all wanted to come talk to him. You know, they, they loved him. His name was Mick. And they all wanted to come talk to Mick. And it was really cool to see the way Mick interacted with him. He spoke a little bit of their language. I can't, I can't remember what it's called, but it was, it was really neat, you know, to see the Aborigines. A lot of them still live pretty, you know, pretty rural and no, pretty, no, pretty plain. no cell phones. Cool. Uh, no cell phone service there. No. Yeah. That oh, sounds awesome, man. Like when that, when oh, I talked to great. that one guy, he was, uh, firefighter in one of those towns but he would they would fly him out when one of those like big ranch trucks or whatever that drive to those stations and roll over or something they'd fly him out in a little two-seater with his cutting tools they had a bad accident and they'd just fly him out and drop him off because it would be hours and hours before somebody got there you know by vehicle and he'd just be by himself (laughs) crazy crazy the stories again i've always wanted to go man it sounds awesome if you get an opportunity to go over there, it's, it's it's pretty cool. It's an easy transition. I was kind of worried about, you know, the different cultures and stuff, but it's it's a pretty easy transition as far as a, another country to go to. Kind of their, you know, their mannerisms, some of them are a little different. And, they you know, they speak English, obviously, but a lot of times you don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> the, first, the first day we were there, um, Anthony, you know, come out and we were getting all, all ready, me and Jim, and putting our packs in the truck. Anthony walked out and said, Oi, mates, uh, when you get your packs squared away, uh, grab some bickies and lollies and throw them in the ute so we can have a nibble this avo. Me and Jim looked at each other, and he just turned and walked away. We're like, what? What did he just say? <laughs> so I went over to Anthony. I'm like, hey, Anthony, uh, what, what was that? He said, oh, no dramas, no dramas. Uh, when you get your packs squared away, just grab some uh, lollies and bickies and throw them in the ute so we can have a nibble this avo. <laughs> I was like, no, I heard you. I just don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> so apparently, uh, lollies is, uh, any candy that isn't hard. Bickies is kind of like cookies. A ute is a utility vehicle. It's just what they call their, their vehicles. And nibble, I figured that it was a snack. And avo is this afternoon. So he's just saying, hey, grab some snacks for this afternoon. <laughs> so just the way they say it, we had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, that's awesome. Um, so what, what was the Buffalo rig, uh, set up? Gosh, it was a, uh, 73 pound, 60 inch big stick assassin. And, uh, I shot a 825 grain arrow. I made that with a Easton 260 spine, just Easton axis. And I put, a uh, 150 grain tough head as a, like an insert glue in glue on the tough head makes and then a 300 grain tough head and then i footed it with an aluminum shaft just about an inch and a half of aluminum stout but yeah it was no fun to shoot really <laughs> it took a while to work up to it from 51 pounds to 73 
Well, man, that sounds like an epic adventure. You got any plans going back soon? Uh, I don't know. It's kind of on the back burner. It was a little bit different, you know, just sharing camp with rifle guys. And, uh, you know, it took quite a while to find some common ground. As traditional bow hunters, you know, we kind of look at the little wins, you know, getting inside 15 yards from an animal. That's a, that's a win, but it just seemed like they were not excited unless it was a dead buffalo and that was it. So I'd, I'd come back from a stock and be like, I got 12 yards and didn't get a shot. And they'd be like, oh, well, that, sorry, mate, maybe tomorrow. I'm just like, no, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's, that's different rad. Strokes for different folks. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's different, you know, the, the, the hunting community over there seems a little bit different. It's, you know, there's not as, as much, they don't, you know, there's not 15 hunting magazines on every newsstand. It didn't seem like, and, and it seems like they're kind of, I did look at some hunting magazines while I was over there and it was all like score trophy based. And I don't know, it was, it was different, you know, different community. They it's don't put like a lot of one. They don't put a lot of emphasis on the meat over there, do do they? I mean, talking to Matt Webb, who's from over there, he's very into the meat. But it sounds like, on a whole, that community um, doesn't uh, put a lot of emphasis on that. No, it didn't seem like that. Yeah. Like, these guys, they, they, you know, they hunt for meat. You know, they'll kill meat bulls, and but you know, they'll kill four meat bulls a year. I don't know how much meat they're eating, but surely they're not taking the whole thing. It right. can't be. But yeah, there's no laws and they're invasive species. I mean, the area that we hunted uh, got called by a helicopter and they killed, like I said, like 2,500 to 3,000 buffalo. Wow. They just shoot them out of helicopters because they're invasive. And if you look, they're big, they're wallows and stuff, catch a lot of water and it's, it's pretty bad for the, the ecosystem down there. Oh, what, uh, what other wildlife did you observe, um, while down under? All kinds of birds, like people, like, um, wild looking birds, uh, some cool lizards, uh, some spiders, uh, wallabies, uh, kangaroos. They were everywhere. None of the deer species (laughs) though, huh? No, no, that was, we were in the, the Northern Territory, so. I don't know. I think down around the east coast is where you find a lot more of the deer. I see. There was an island they kept telling us about that people go out to hunt rusa deer, and that'd be really cool to go back and do. But so how how much time did you allot yourself for that trip? Uh, we did seven days in the bush. And I and talked to them into that. They were talking about doing four days, and I told them, I was like, well, you know, I'd like to do as many days as, as possible because doing it with a bow is going to be a little bit more difficult, and, and it definitely was. Yeah, that sounds like a, a heck of an adventure, though. Did you take uh, a lot of photos while you were over there? I, I ended up not. Um, they were taking a lot of photos, and, and they they sent me back a thumb drive. Or thumb drive. Yeah. That's it, yeah. <laughs> a thumb drive with all the photos on it and I took maybe a dozen on my phone or whatever, but I'm, I'm really bad about that. I need to get need to get better about taking photos. Yeah, me and Bob, we we even got new cameras, and we still suck at that. <laughs> I bought a new camera last year because, like you know, 
I submitted an article to a traditional bow hunter magazine and I just didn't have any good pictures for it. And, uh, talking to Don and he was like, you need to get you a camera and just start taking a bunch of pictures. You know, that's, that's a big part of it. Documenting a, you know, an experiment experience. And, uh, I bought a camera and it just stays in my pack. So I'm like, I, I try, I, I try, but it's hard. I found to, you're hunting. You're busy. Yeah. Yeah. I exactly. found. Yeah. I ain't, I ain't thinking about it. <laughs> I found that once I put the camera, I got a um, rangefinder pouch that was hooked to my bino pouch, and I would put that camera in that rangefinder pouch that was on my chest. And once I had it there, I found myself getting it out and using it a lot more. But then once I got into the rainy conditions, I didn't want to have it there. And so once it was back in my pack, it wasn't coming out anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. I try to keep it in my pocket. And I, I got a couple pictures of some bedded, some bedded buffalo across a water hole from me. But, you know, if you were close enough to take a picture, I was trying to get close enough to take a shot. <laughs> right, exactly. So, uh, what, uh, other kind of adventures, uh, are you, are you planning anything out of state now or, I mean, Montana's got enough to keep you busy, it sounds, but what else is, uh, on the horizon? It's funny how that works. You know, you, you, you live in West Virginia and you just want to come to Montana and Wyoming and then you move to Wyoming or you move to Montana and you want to go to Alaska and Australia and <laughs> you, know, you want to plan a trip back East and you just, I don't know, I guess I'm just not happy wherever I am. I got to travel and hunt. Uh, yeah, adventure. But, uh, yeah, adventure. Um, me and my buddy Scotty Terry and George Coopin is flying into Alaska next September for Caribou. I'm going to fly in on the 15th and get flown out on the 25th. I'm pretty excited about that hunt. Yeah, that sounds awesome. You're going to leave the bugle and bulls behind for some caribou hunting. Ah, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll make that trade. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid elk. Yeah, and all they're they're a lot of fun to 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 see and to hear and to to shoot. But man, there's a lot of downtime. There's elk ain't. I don't. I could take it or leave it. Really. <laughs> so, uh, do you do you uh, get into the mule deer, uh, whitetail? Like, what's your? You know, do you have a favorite? I don't really have a favorite. I'll hunt anything that's in season. Uh, I really enjoy antelope. I don't know why. Just punishing myself in a blind for hours and hours and hours to get a shot, but I've killed two since I've been out here, and those were probably felt like some of the biggest accomplishments. It's just as much time as you spend scouting water holes, setting up blinds, than just setting there. Um, but mule deer, I've, I've hunted a little bit here. I end up killing them a nice one the second year I was out here in an antelope blind and uh, no antelope was coming in, but this bachelor group and mule deer kept coming in. So I kind of would go over there. And at that time you couldn't run trail cameras during season. So I couldn't put a trail camera up because antelope season was in. So I was driving two hours to set in a blind for half a day to make sure they were still coming in for two weeks before mule deer season come in. And, uh, opening morning, like two minutes after legal light, that that uh, buck that I killed three years ago came in and drank right in front of me and shot him at like 12 yards. It's pretty cool. Super cool. But as far uh, as spotting and stalking, those guys have my utmost respect. Those guys that sneak up on those and, and their beds and 
I've tried it a few times and it's, I feel like it's something I could get into, but it seems like right whenever that's the best is, you know, I'm elk hunting or something like that. Yeah. So what's the, um, are you going with some guys who've done this caribou hunt before or how are you arranging that? Uh, my buddy George, he, uh, he's been up there before caribou hunting and he actually got a hold of me was it two years ago, maybe a year ago. And sent me a picture of this guy in front of a, a float plane with some caribou racks and a doll sheep rack. And, uh, he said, this guy wants to trade. He's a big Fred Bear. He's wrote a couple books on, uh, Fred Bear memorabilia, like, um, uh, aging bows and stuff like that. You know, what, what year they're made and stuff. And, uh, he's got a coat, uh, some Fred Bear coat. And the guy wanted to trade a, uh, a free fly-in moose hunt or caribou hunt for two people for that coat. And I was like, that's awesome. Are you going to do it? He said, well, it depends. Do you want to go caribou hunting? And I was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll, I'll do it. You should trade him. <laughs> <laughs> and we got my buddy Scotty. He's going in there, and we're just splitting splitting what it would cost one person three ways. So it's uh, just flying in. They drop you off, and uh, 10 days later, they come back and get you. It's going to be awesome, man. Should be a fun hat. So with the caribou, I don't know a lot about it, but it sounds like it's like if you show up where they're at, then there's a lot of action. And then if you show up where they're not at, then there's no action. Is that the the scheme of things? That's what I've gathered. It's definitely feast or famine. I've talked to a few people that did it, and I guess if if it's on, it's one of the best hunts you can go on. They say they're made for bow hunters. So. Now, are this is this pre-rut, um, or is this why they're in the rut? I, I don't really don't even know. I haven't it's, even. I, I don't. I, I don't know much about them, but I heard that once they're in the rut, that their meat is almost not even edible. Really? That's what I've heard. I don't know. You know I've also heard people say that rutted up blacktail bucks don't eat no good. And, I, I beg I've to heard differ. the same thing about yeah. I've heard the same thing about deer and antelope, and you know, back east they said it. Out here they say it about the bulls and the elk and the deer. And but I, I think that I'm really if there's a a rutted up animal or or like an animal like an antelope, you know, that has a lot of smell to the the fur. I'm really particular on. I'll skin it. I wear gloves and I'll skin it. And I'll use a different knife and change my gloves out. So you're not touching the oils on the hairs. You're not touching the tarsal gland on the deer. Right. And then you're dragging that blade to the meat. And I think that's where that gaminess people talk about comes from. Makes a lot of sense. You know, I've, I've cooked antelope for, I, I really enjoy cooking wild game. If someone says that they, they don't like an animal, well, within the week, they're going to be trying it again because I want to cook it for them because I think a lot of people, you know, and caribou is probably, I remember when I was younger, we had a, a buddy that had a meat processing place and a guy brought a caribou and it was spoiled. You know, you set it there for 10 days and you don't, you don't do anything to keep it in the shade or, you know, get it dry, put it in bags, submerge it in the creek. We did that with mule deer in Colorado. And you got to get that meat cool, especially if you're going to be there for a week or more. Absolutely. But I've heard people say that about, yeah, I, 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 antelope uh, gets a bad rap, uh, or 
you know, I've heard a lot of people say that they don't care for it. Man, antelope is prime time. The stuff I've got my hands on, I've never killed one, but man, the antelope that my, uh, stepdad was bringing back from Wyoming every year was unbelievable table fare. It's one of my favorite, favorite game animals. Yeah. yeah. My wife, you know, I haven't had any. We eat a lot of deer and elk, but <clears throat> she likes antelopes, her favorite. She's always trying to get me to go antelope hunting. Yeah. yeah, I know some guys that go over to Wyoming with their guns to just blast a bunch of them. Simply, you know, they don't call it a hunting trip. They, they're just over there to get the antelope meat and bring it home. Um, so, yeah, and and also I think to exactly what you're saying, you know, my stepdad raised me that way in hunting that, you know, taking really good care of the animal is uh, how you get quality meat for sure. Yeah, I cooked a mountain lion. Um, a buddy of mine in uh, Idaho this year killed a mountain lion, <laughs> and I got some meat off of it. And I cooked it for all the guys that I work with, and they were just like, "This is this is really good." I'm like, "This mountain lion." <laughs> have you you guys ever tried mountain lion? Yeah, I have not yet. I killed one a few years ago. Yeah, dude, it's good. I made I'd take it to work and I'd make cougar chili and cougar stew. It was awesome. Oh, oh yeah. People don't know what they're eating. My wife even, she uh, she was helping me cut it up, and we were cutting up an elk at the same time, and she she fried up some of the fat off the cougar, and I am not shitting you. It tasted like bacon. Really? Yes. I'm not wow. kidding you. Huh. Like I'm like, you are nuts. And she's like, no, try it. I'm like, here. Ugh. But I tried it, and it, it did. I read that somewhere else too. I looked it up afterwards, and there was somewhere else I found somebody said that. So no, I I, I also heard good. that the really I heard those bobcats are just as good as well. I've heard that too. Yeah, if you look at the meat on a cougar, it looks just like a pork chop. You yeah. know, that real pale pink. It's not uh, very red, and it's it's a real clean taste. You know, there's no gaminess or anything to it. Cool. Well. uh Maybe uh, tell us uh, one of your favorite hunting stories. Not to put you on the spot, but we like to do That's that. All right. Uh, probably the first antelope buck I ever killed. That was that was a uh, that was pretty cool. That mule deer actually I had one blind, and I went and knocked on this guy's door, and I was just driving around, and uh, we have a what's called a nine hundred series antelope tag. It's good for pretty much the whole state with a bow. So I got that tag. Me and my girlfriend both drew it. And uh, I went out to this area this guy I worked with told me there was a lot of antelope out there. So I just went out there and started knocking on doors and uh, had a farmer come to the door. And I was like, I was like, hey, buddy, uh, I, I got a um, an antelope tag. I was wondering if uh, you allow bow hunting for antelope on your property. And he looked at me. He's like, you want to bow hunt them? I said, yeah. He's like, yeah, I don't care. Good luck. <laughs> I got talking to him. I was like, "Have you ever had? Do you have anyone else hunting?" He's like, "I've never had anyone ask to bow hunt an antelope on my property." So it turns out they had it was like twenty thousand acres between him and his in laws in laws property, and I was the only person hunting it, which seems really cool, but it's kind of overwhelming. You know, you got thirty water holes to look at. So yeah, he told me I was like, "You know, what water holes do you normally see antelope on?" And he's like, that one right up there by the county road. And it was one like 60 yards off the county road. And I was like, oh, well, I might try that one. But I'm going to try you know, another one. He told me another one. And I went over there and set it up. 
and that was end up where that bachelor group of muleys was coming in. So I only had one, I had two blinds, but I had one set up for my girlfriend. So I only had one blind and I couldn't move it because there's antelope where those mule deer were coming in. So I left it there until I killed my antelope and pulled it. And every time we drove in, those antelope were at that friggin' water hole by the county road, 60 yards off the road. So I moved that, that blind up there to there, up there to that water hole and set in it two more days and the antelope come in. I was leaning back in my chair because, you know, you just, you just try to get comfortable and sit there. It's 15 and a half hours of daylight that time of year. Oh. So I'm kicked back and I'm reading a magazine and, uh, I look up out of the out of the, the blind, and there's an antelope doe standing at 15 yards. I'm like, oh, shit. So, you know, you don't think your your uh, blind chair squeaks and stuff until you're trying to, you know, really slowly get down and get your bow. And and uh, by that time, about seven or eight antelope does were all at the water hole. And I was going to shoot a doe. I didn't care. And then I saw a buck bringing up the rear. So they kind of drank and stuff like that and i couldn't get a shot at the buck because because all the animals you know all the does were in the way and finally the does filtered off and that buck just turned broadside at like 16 yards and i just smoked it and i think i set 56 hours in a blind that year to kill him uh, and it was wow. just i don't just know. The, I, the sense of accomplishment yeah, the sense of uh, colton i don't know how you could like animal hunting i did it one year and I sat, I think, four days. It was miserable. It was so hot. Oh, it's terrible. People that haven't sat in one of those blinds, they don't understand. Like, like I hunt in the desert all the time, and I love the heat. I'm like, it's great. I'm 90-some degrees. I don't give a shit. I wear my shorts. I'm good in my tennis shoes. But you do not – there's usually a breeze in the desert. And when you're sitting in one of those blinds, and you don't have the windows open because those little things see you, there's no breeze. I mean, you are j- – it was miserable. I could uh. – just That's what like I was talking about earlier. My wife wants me to go on an antelope hunt every year. I'm like, no, not going to do it. Well, we we have to wait like 10 to 15 years to get an antelope uh, tag in our state. Well, we, no, you don't have to. To draw the really premium, the, good ones. The good ones. Right. We only have a couple that open before elk season. If you want to yeah. go during regular archer season, there's there's several units you could draw yeah, with a bow. True. And hunt that's true. And hunt every year. But, man. You can have that stuff. I'll tell you That's that. true. Yeah, I was I was holding out for one of the good ones, and I drew early with uh, eight points, eight years of waiting, and I was so excited. And yeah, that was miserable. I was like drinking two gallons of water and peeing one gallon into a jug, and I was just so overheated. And I sat for so long. And um, now, when I still put in for that tag, and every year that I put in for it, I'm like, please don't draw it. <laughs> <laughs> like let, let's let's get it when we're 60 <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, i did a little bit of decoy hunting this year and it was fun but i don't know there's something about that that blind hunting i don't you, you hate it the entire time and then when you kill one you're just like oh that wasn't bad at all yeah. and then you just kind of lie yeah, to yourself no, and then you try to get next year yeah it's like anything else i guess you know you just you gotta like you said it's that reward of doing something crazy that most people would be like, why, why do you sit? You know, I work around a lot of people that don't hunt. Like you sit in trees and wait for deer. Like what, what are you thinking? You know? Yeah. Oh yeah. And, That's and, when I moved out here and I was talking about tree stands. You're just like, why would you stand, sit in a tree? Wait till rifle season comes in. You, they're, they're running out in the middle of the fields. <laughs> like what's different? You know, they don't like that sitting around. 
But I grew yeah. up in West Virginia, so you know, that's, that's if, if you're hunting, you're in a tree stand most of the time. So yeah, ambush hunting. Do you do any tree stand hunting for whitetails out in Montana? I do a little bit. Uh, we got a it's an archery only, just a wee little section. Uh, guy donated his farm to the state, and there's some houses around it, so they made it a a bow hunting only. You can use shotguns for birds and waterfowl, but if you're hunting deer, it's just strictly bow hunting. So. I hunt that a lot once gun season comes in. There's, I've never seen a big buck there, but I've shot a couple of does, and it's fun to just get out there and not have to you fight with the Orange Army. Yeah, because you guys are hunting that they're hunting the rut with rifles in Montana, huh? Oh yeah, that's why that's why you don't see the big bucks <laughs> this part of the state that you do in Wyoming and Idaho. I went over to Idaho. I helped a buddy. He needed a a guy to guide an elk hunter. And our season wasn't in yet. So I went over and helped him and just, you know, driving back to the house at, at night, seeing the alpha alpha sales, the bucks over there. I was just like, what in the world? Completely white, different than here. White tails. There's white tail and mule deer there. Yeah. Uh, yeah you... it's, it's amazing. You know, you, you shoot them at 800 yards in the rut and you don't have big bucks. Funny how that works, ain't it? Yeah. <laughs> seems, seems like simple math, huh? Yeah. yeah. You'd think it'd be simple. Yeah. Sure, definitely. So awesome. Well, we uh, we definitely uh, appreciate you coming on. And uh, is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners in in closing? Uh, no, not that I can think of. Just uh, well, I mean, like I talked talked about earlier. Like, don't think that it costs ten thousand dollars to go on an elk hunt. Don't think that you need a million dollars in the the bank account to to travel and hunt and stuff like that. Just simple things save up enough money to you know food and gas and some tags it's, it's not hard to get out and, and do the stuff that people talk about i hate people say oh elk hunt that's on my bucket list elk hunt's on your bucket list the cape buffalo ought to be on your bucket list elk hunt's doable yeah. i know and guys start uh adding up this like these lists like oh my food's gonna cost this much i'm like well wait a minute don't you eat food every day exactly. so yeah, and then gas, and it's like, well, don't you drive your car every day? Um, so, like, right. a lot of these expenses, these guys try to stack on there, and then this gear and that gear, and it's like, you go back to uh, Sterling Holbrook with his cast iron skillet in his backpack with his, I mean, you don't have to have all this stuff to go on these adventures. You just don't. If, if you if you whitetail hunt in the east, Northeast, especially or the Midwest, you've already got the 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 gear to handle anything September has to offer out here. Right. You know, people it, it can very easily turn into a really expensive hunt. We did uh, when I was in college, I did two elk hunts for a thousand dollars a piece. That was from Ohio. Our tag was six hundred dollars. So two of us drove out there. We backpacked in. I think we spent like thirty bucks on food for seven days. Yeah. And there's Nor pasta sides at Walmart and tuna packets. And they make a real good dinner. Yeah. You know, me and Bob, me and Bob Smith, we've been making our own mountain houses for like two years now. Our own, you know, freeze dry or not freeze dry, but dehydrated meals. And and there's there's ways to to get around if you really want to do it. I was talking to a fellow at work. They were giving me shit about the amount of tags I bought one year in Wyoming, and I asked him. You know, he was smoking a cigarette and drinking a Red Bull. I said, how many Red Bulls you drink a week? And he told me, I got out my phone, did the math, and it was like $800 a year he spends on Red Bull. 
you know, and then he smokes, you know, a smoker, that's, that's 1500 to $2,000 a year. Yeah. It's not hard to afford this stuff. You just got to pick what you want to do. Yeah. The first time my brother and I went to Montana on elk hunt, I think it was 01, 2000 or 2001. So I was like 20 years old. And that was back before we had debit cards and everything. Everything was cash. So I just had a little change thing, you know, I'd throw the change in and it piled up. So I took, it cost me about 40 bucks to fill up my pickup at the time. So I did bags of quarters, $40 bags, and I just counted it all out and I had it all set up and we paid for all of our gas over there and back with quarters. <laughs> and forty dollars awesome. quarters. It's like a little tiny Ziploc bag, and you put that on the counter at the gas station, and they go, "That's not forty dollars." I'm like, "Count it every almost every time." <laughs> like, count it, and they'd count it. And they're like, "Yeah, that is forty bucks." All right, but we did all the way over there and back. I mean, you, you, uh yeah. It's just the the big big money nowadays is the tags. You know, the tags are getting expensive, and uh yeah, we that caribou hunt. What was it? Two or three years ago, Alaska was just like, "Yeah, let's double it, all of our tags." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I think you just gotta do it, like you said, break it up over the each month. I mean, these guys that wait to the last second and then go, oh, "I got to come up with a thousand bucks." It's like, man, if you, you just come up with a hundred bucks a month, a year later exactly. you got you got that twelve hundred bucks and it's on and popping. I shot coyotes last January and paid for half of my uh, Australia plane ticket. (laughs) I got a little jar on top of the gun ball right now that says Alaska on it. My (laughs) girlfriend painted for me with a little caribou on it, and I come back from the fur buyer. That's what I do in the winter. I shoot coyotes on my day off, and you get $50 to $75 a pop on a coyote. It's worth getting up in the morning going hunting. And that's my plan is buying the plane ticket to Alaska with Coyote pelt money. Jeez, do they pay that out here, Bob? Probably. Dude, we should just go coyote and mountain lion hunting. Like you said, we should be mountain lion hunters <laughs> and kill coyotes, coyotes while we're doing it. We live aren't worth crap. They're mangy little things. You got to go over to Eastern Oregon, and then we just spent two hundred dollars to go shoot a seventy-five dollar coyote. <laughs> right. Yeah. We yeah, can go over east and, and hunt mountain lions with our bows, and then on the on the, um, when the lion hunting isn't good, we'll just shoot coyotes to pay for it. Yeah. Well, I think Utah has a bounty down. now too. You hear about that, Colton? I think Utah's paying like yeah, yeah. Utah's like a fifty dollar bounty, like ain't it? Box of coyote, dude. So you get the bounty and the fur. Yeah, you get the bounty and the fur. Dang. We got a place that's paying twenty five dollars for a bounty on coyotes right now. And then I get, I don't scan them, and I used to put up fur, but man, that's that's a lot of work on a coyote. Yeah. So I just drop them off. The guy gives me pretty good prices for just on the carcass, and then I get that twenty five dollar bounty and seventy five dollar coyotes. Shit, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, you guys could just go uh, walk down some mountain lines. That was that uh, that fellow you were talking about, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, you said it took a year to get on the podcast. Yeah, Bob. Bob's always like, dude, let the heck with these elk and deer. Let's just be mountain lion hunters because Oregon is just a predator pit full of lions, and and uh, it it'll, it would uh, we wouldn't have the pressure. And now I can see how we could fund that. We could shoot we could shoot coyotes on our off time. <laughs> uh, heck yeah, yeah. There yeah you thank go. 
And we'll be doing a big service to uh, our mule deer that are almost extinct in our state. Oh, would you rather have mountain lions and mule deer? I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> well, we got them. Well, we got them, man. Yeah. We outlawed uh, the use of hounds on uh, bears and cats back in 96 and baiting. And so, yeah, and then all our awesome liberal politicians here uh, – Want to just keep moving these wolves into every little nook and cranny they can put them in. Well, don't you know that uh, Portland and Eugene, that those guys, they, they, those uh, guys in those cities, they know more about mountain lion than you guys do. You should know that. Yeah, sounds like you've been been to our our uh, predator pit before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my buddy Chris, he's picking a black-tailed deer, and he's like got a couple uh, mature bucks that he's after, and he's like, the time's the time is uh, the clock is ticking, and I'm like, for what? And he goes, well, the wolves are going to eat them soon. I've got to I've got to get these bucks killed before the wolves do. Um, so it's, it's a reality. Are they introducing wolves to Oregon? Or do they have wolves in Oregon? I've never been. Oh yeah, yeah, they they. Are- they, we have a lot of wolves. Yeah, and no management on them. Yeah, we, we actually, before they reintroduced them here or whatever, we, we said, okay, we're gonna make, you know, our fishing games, like, we'll do it if we, you guys buy off on this management plan, which is once there's seven breeding pairs and a hundred and some wolves, I don't know the exact number, but it was seven breeding pairs, um, then, they'll get turned over to state management and they're like, okay, that's fine. Well, then once we got seven breeding pairs, they wouldn't turn it over. And, and this is, these are wolves that they have counted for sure. A hundred percent that they know of, you know what I'm saying? And now there's 15 or, I mean, now it's like, it's just out of hand, you know, and they still won't turn it over to state. And you always just did pass a new wolf plan this year. Um, but it's still just, just too much red tape to actually get to the hunting them and managing them, you know, and if it's anything like our mountain lions and everything else, it'll take, you know, they'll have to be, everything else will have to be pretty much extinct before they actually start doing anything about it. So, yeah, it's not a and good. That's the hard part. Uh, Rob Petuto did a, a podcast about that, you know, in 2009, they, uh, gave out tags for Idaho. They're like, yeah, everyone can shoot them. And you know, he talked about on that podcast, he was like, heck yeah, we're going to, you know, we're going to do something. And they went out there and could not kill them. Yeah. Could not trap them. I mean, they're a really, really hard animal to hunt and kill. So even when they say, yeah, you can manage them, the logistics of managing them, you, know, you got to kind of wrap your mind around that. That's. Yeah. And they, they also will, you will have like evidence, like a trail camera or a picture uh, or GPS, like you have evidence that you got them in this area, and they're like, "Yeah, no, they're not there." Well, here they are; they're right here, and they're like, "Yeah, no, they're they're just, they're just not in that area." Okay. Yeah, and there's a. I, I just posted something on our oh, Instagram thing the other day, and they're they're uh, they got the signatures on to run it through in Colorado. You know, they got to verify oh, ninety percent or something, and if they do that. You know, man, because Colorado's kind of turned into a pretty, pretty liberal state too. And once they vote that stuff in, man, there, our our over the counter elk hunting is going to go in the tank really fast. Because I don't know what 
what everyone's pushing for it. I mean, is it because they just want to be able to see them when they go on a drive out through the country? Or, I mean, what yeah, what benefit do they, they have? Well, I mean, that's just... Well, I think that uh, yeah, they, they, the vegans would like to see all the hunting done by uh, uh, four-legged predators instead of two-legged predators. And um, yeah. that's, I think... <laughs> I, I'm not big into conspiracy, but I think at the end of the day, that's that's pretty much it. I never thought of that. You know, they did, from what I've heard, I don't follow on the wolf stuff too much. It kind of gets muddled with opinions. But in Yellowstone, you know, there was no hunters. You know, there was nothing to keep, you know, prey animals in check. So they introduced the wolves and, and fine, you know, that's it. But, you know, an ecosystem can't can't support two animals that occupy the same niche and a wolf is doing what a hunter does but a hunter is doing it you know through regulations and you know creating revenue people yeah yeah <laughs> yeah exactly yeah doing paying millions of dollars to, to come in and do that and the wolf does it for free and he does it unchecked there's not a biologist telling the wolf how many elk he can kill in this unit there's not quotas there's not anything so you know, if, if there wasn't hunters, then I see I see why introducing a wolf into the ecosystem would work. But you know, we, we do we're doing the same thing, and hunters are a lot better at it and generate a hell of a lot of money to do it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's a dumb well, mess, is what it is. Big old mess. Big old mess. Big old mess. Yeah. Big old mess. Yeah. Well, we'd love to uh, to get you back on after you go and. Fill that freezer up uh, all over again. Sounds like uh, the caribou hunt's going to be a blast, and um, we definitely uh, want to keep up with uh, your adventures. You got my number. <laughs> right on, Colton. Well, we, uh, I appreciate you guys. Once again, don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. As we mentioned in the intro, we're giving away the Bear Super Kodiak Black Beauty at the end of the month. So get get in there and support us on Patreon. We do appreciate it. Check us out on Instagram. We uh, put up a bunch of photos uh, from these oncoming shows. And support all the local statewide organizations that support traditional bow hunting. We do appreciate it. Keep the wind in your face. Pick a spot and shoot straight. Thank you.